to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. You know, Julia, they don't die in the desert at this time. What? The desert doesn't kill them. I'm explaining it to you because you look nervous. I wasn't nervous. Maybe I was a little bit concerned, but that's not the same thing. Of course we can stop now, if you want. No, we can watch a little bit more, if you want. Okay, I I would like that. Anyway, this is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 74, which begins with Screwloose returning to wake everybody up, and it ends with Max following Savannah into a large pipe. Back again with us are Jonathan and Tabitha Carlisle from the Princess Bride Minute. Oh, guys, that was a great intro. <laughs> it, it warmed my heart and re- reminded me of all the fun times that we had with, with that podcast. It was very cool. <laughs> I'm glad you appreciated it. <laughs> it actually made me want to watch that movie again, which is great, you know, after you watch a movie in one minute at a time. It's great to actually want to watch the movie again later. As I was putting that together, I vowed that I would not do a Peter Falk impression because I do terrible impressions. (laughs) I love every one of them. (laughs) Speaking of impressions and launching us right into this minute, Screwloose returns and does a lovely alarm clock impression by waking everybody up. And he's found something. He's excited about something and no one really knows what's going on. But little by little, they all all get up off the ground and Screwloose leads them to the top of the dune and points out over the horizon and in the distance we can see lights shining from barter town and it's amazing because they're so far away and yet as they're coming up to the top of this dune they're lit up <laughs> yes. as if there was a stage light yeah <laughs> Maybe the moon is really bright. (laughs) Well, we know from minute 73 that it is a full moon. Yeah. We got to see that pretty distinctly. Now, is Screwloose mute? At this point in time, I would say yes, although I cannot remember if he ever says anything for the rest of the movie, because he's got a decent part to play in the, the final chase. But I can't remember if he ever says anything or, you know, whoops and hollers or anything during the closing chase. But as of right now, yes, he is mute. Near as I can tell, he never makes any sort of sound. But I gotta wonder, is it because he's legitimately mute or is it because he just chooses not to speak? Yeah, I guess that was, I was wondering, you know, chicken or the egg kind of thing. Like, is he, if he's mute, is that kind of, uh, does that contribute to him being called screw loose just because he interacts with the world differently? Or maybe he legitimately is, does have a screw loose and... You know, talking is just not his thing. I was wondering for a little bit, it could be that he's deaf and that's why he doesn't say anything. But one of the toys that he plays with is a sound toy that Bugs Bunny that he pulls the string for. And yeah, when you have one of those toys, they have a weird vibration to them when you pull the string. But I don't think there's anything in this movie that has any sort of evidence toward him being hearing impaired. So I'm thinking about the vibration of that Bugs Bunny toy. And that is a type of mechanism that they don't have very much of. They don't have those sorts of things around. So pulling that and feeling that vibration would be something unique. So I think him pulling that and then sitting there listening to it or feeling it 
in almost a comforting way. I think it's possible that he is deaf and he was pulling that to feel the vibration. Yeah, I think the only argument that I would have against the deaf screw loose theory is that there are instances where people shout to him and he responds. Yeah, there you go. But, you know, maybe he's sensing the vibrations of the air as the sound waves get there. <laughs> he's very, he's, he's dare, got, he's he's got daredevil yeah. abilities. Yeah. <laughs> Now, okay, so this just occurred to me. No matter what woke him up, no matter what, because I don't know if he could actually see the light shining over the hill, and that's what, yeah, I don't know. But is this the first time that they're seeing electric lights? But I think my real question is, does he think that this is the Tomorrow Morrowland? Oh, never mind. The kid says that. It's, that's not a revelation. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you haven't seen the movie over and over. You're like, oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> I didn't think of that first. You don't have every moment memorized. <laughs> yeah. As far as if they've ever seen electric lights before, I'm guessing no, they have not. The plane would have had electric lights in it, but I think most of the kids weren't even born for the plane crash. And perhaps the electricity in the plane may have lasted for a little while, as long as there was fuel to run. Do the electricals in a plane, do they have a battery like in a car? They could have a battery. They could have... Some sort of alternator hooked up. I'm not really yeah, sure how planes know. work. In any case, the electricity in the plane would not have lasted long. No. Certainly not long enough for any of these particular kids to remember what electric lights look like. So for these kids, this is really the first time that they've seen in person lights this bright that aren't fire. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a weird place to try and put your mind into. I know that they've heard stories, so at least there's something there. But even if you've heard stories, you're imagining of what lights might look like. You know, I, like this, this might be blowing some of their minds right now, seeing what it actually looks like. Or it might be underwhelming. I mean, they might, they might be excited that it, the promise of Tomorrow Morrowland, but at the same time, someone might be like, oh, that's what it looks like? Nah. Given that their only exposure to modern society is what they can see through the stereoscope toy mm-hmm. with the slides, mm-hmm. you don't get the full effect of an electric light when you're looking at something backlit by a fire. So they have pictures of cities and high scrapers and the river of light and all of that but it's just not the same so seeing it in person i imagine they are pretty amazed and the littlest one eddie is the one who just straight up asks is this tomorrow morrowland and of course max has to be the buzzkill and say no it's barter town Barter town Okay, he's not the buzzkill because he has told them that the only thing out there is Bartertown and that's worse than getting lost out in the nothing. <laughs> How does Max know that this is not Tomorrow Morrowland? Like we might we might know it's not a great place. It's probably not a good place for kids to be, but but who knows? Maybe maybe there's something there. Maybe maybe they could make something out of it or maybe Auntie would uh, you know, welcome them in. Maybe Max has his own experience and it's just not the experience that that they would have. It could also be that in his wandering max has stumbled across just another settlement Hmm. i suppose that max has enough navigational skills to know that he was more or less going back the way he came Mm -hmm. because you know you're in the middle of the desert without any navigational skills whatsoever i wouldn't know if i was going north or south or back the way i came i would have absolutely no idea he could have actually crossed the desert and is now on the other side and this is a different oasis of technology and electricity. You never know. Hmm. But I think Max does know because he's an experienced wastelander. Yeah. So even so earlier when he was left out in the desert and then was that Savannah that, that brought him in? Mm-hmm. Yes. 
So how, I guess, how far did she drag him? And, you know, how, because that would mess up your compass, not knowing how far you went or which direction. But, uh, but maybe, I don't know, maybe he can recognize it. I think Savannah only dragged Max for half a night and a good chunk of a day. Only? That's a long time. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> That's a long time to not know which direction you're traveling in. I think you're right. That would definitely mess with Max's sense of direction. And he really didn't have any favors leaving barter town to begin with because he had that giant mascot head dropped on his shoulders and then the horse was just set loose to run so between not knowing where he started and not knowing where he ended only knowing two points on a map and having no idea how they relate to each other the fact that they make it back to barter town is actually pretty impressive although savannah chose their direction of travel Mm -hmm. and max just followed them back out into the nothing i would expect her to have excellent navigational skills so i think she knew which direction she wanted to go in and chose that direction on purpose is she going back the way that she found him yeah i think so yes but even so, it wouldn't explain how they were able to find Bartertown so easily. Because Savannah had no idea that Max was coming from Bartertown. His tracks would have blown away because he was half covered by sand when she found him. Yes. So she had no idea which direction he came from. You could argue that this is all just a fluke. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood contrivance. Maybe like Julia said, Savannah took him back, at least where she found him, at least as a starting point. And maybe that's the same pit that the horse fell in. I was wondering that the other day. So there's the horse and his boy. So maybe they fell into (laughs) Narnia and maybe they're all all okay. Maybe. We can only hope. (laughs) I'm just so happy you made a Narnia reference. (laughs) Probably one of the least popular ones, but... I love A Horse and His Boy. I wish they would make it into a movie. That would be interesting. Yeah. Instead, the only movie we have is A Boy and His Dog. That's a very different story. (laughs) (laughs) I want to take a slight detour as everyone is standing up here at the top of this dune looking out over at barter town in the distance because these events that we see are very different in the book from the point of the fade in at nighttime to this wipe that we see at the end of this shot specifically in this shot it's just them standing there max says no barter town and then he says it's our only chance and then there's a wipe and suddenly they're at this pipe there's a lot that happens between second 34 and the wipe somewhere around second 40 and i pulled all of my stuff from the mad max storybook because not only does it include information about why max is suddenly barter town's our only chance but it also explains the whole gecko situation. Buckle up for more child death. Oh, is all oh I'm no, saying. not more child death. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> since you did reference us to the, the storybook, I'm looking one page back, you know, referencing last minute, basically, where the, the sand and uh, Finn fell in the sand. Uh, this is also explaining that Finn had all their water. So now their water's all gone. Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, it really makes their situation a bit more dire because all of the water that Max and Anna and Tubba and Eddie were carrying, they probably used up most of that. And then Savannah and all of them, if Finn was carrying all the water, boom, there it's gone. So it is what it is. <laughs> Be- before we wipe, or uh, that's a weird way of saying that, but uh, before... <laughs> anyway... Before that happens, before the wipe happens, so Bartertown, these lights are going. I know we've seen it earlier in the movie, and it does seem to be a lot of activity at night, but do they really have that much energy that they're just, you know, 
letting the candles burn all night long. Well, with 400 pigs all producing methane at once, I'm sure they've got some energy to burn. Ooh, is that like, uh, again, around here, uh, well, at least years ago, there was kind of a, a oil boom in northern Michigan here. So we still have some oil refineries sitting around, and every once in a while, they've they've got, uh, you know, like exhaust things, and every once in a while, they flare up just to kind of burn off the excess or, or whatever. So I wonder, with their methane, do they ever have to do that? They just kind of like flare the lights? Is there a process involved, I guess, that they might have some extra waste or something that they need to get rid of that's not usable any other? I don't know. It could be. It could also be that their generator systems don't have batteries. So as long as they're producing energy, that energy is flowing. So the only way for them to turn off the lights would be to just turn off all power. So they just leave everything running. It's sort of the fluorescent light situation where it costs more energy to turn it off and turn it back on again, as opposed to just leaving it running. Sure. I'm sure in Barter Town, if you turn something off, there's no guarantee it's going to turn back on. So <laughs> just keep exactly. it going. <laughs> I was also thinking that Master Blaster... Yeah, he wasn't that great a guy, and he took advantage of his position of running Underworld, but he had a system, and it worked, and kept things running relatively smoothly. Now that Ironbar is running the place, I think perhaps he is going overboard, overcompensating, or has become gluttonous, and showing off his power by producing as much energy as he possibly can. Are you saying that Ironbar has something to compensate for? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's really not a bad plan, though. I mean, if he's doing it just out of his ego, then that's not great. But if he's doing it as a exchange of power, you know, or you know, whatever, that the, the people of Barter Town would be like, yeah, I think we're okay with this iron bar being in charge because we, we've got plenty of power. And then he can kind of dial it back a little bit after everyone gets safe. Who doesn't love iron bar? He's such a rock star. <laughs> I want to transition over into the storybook real quick and pick up with them lying together at night on the side of the dune, more or less the top of this minute. So as the storybook goes, he says, That night, camping in the desert, Gecko suddenly cried, I can hear it. Ice hearing the sonic. It's it's there. Ice hearing it. So Gecko in the storybook, still there, still alive, still with them. He hasn't been completely glossed over and forgotten like in the movie. And far across the desert, the lights of Barter Town came on. So Gecko probably heard like a vibration in the ground or caught some sort of glint out of the corner of his eye. And Anna shouts, Captain, Captain, we's there. The tribe began walking again. At last, they reached a cliff overlooking Barter Town. They gazed down in wonder, chattering excitedly. Where's the video? We's home. A high scraper. It's not Tomorrow Morrowland, Max told them. It's Barter Town. But he knew that to the tribe members, it was the most wonderful thing they'd ever seen. Max thought for a moment. He desperately needed water and supplies for himself and the tribe. They couldn't survive much longer without them. He knew he could find supplies in Barter Town, but how could he get in? Certainly not the way he'd gotten in before the Collector would see him. Suddenly, a guard who was patrolling the town caught sight of Max and the kids on the cliff. They ducked out of sight. Suddenly? So they're a lot closer in the book than they are in the movie. Yeah, they're a lot closer. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at set photos for Barter Town, you notice that they built it in a quarry. So around the back edges of Barter Town, there are cliffs. So in the storybook, they walked 
almost to the point where they would have just fallen into Barter Town <laughs> if they'd gone too far. I think that addition to the story kind of answers questions that we had on Monday's Minute, wondering about how Screwloose just all of a sudden knew to walk up over the edge of the dune to see Barter Town. Yeah. I think what Gecko heard when he, he was referring to the Sonic, I think he was referring to the sound that light bulbs make when they come on, like that buzzing, mm-hmm. especially the kind of light bulbs that they would have in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not very high quality. They would have been really just not great. And so I think he would have heard them come on. I think that carries over to what we see in the movie where Screw Loose was probably woken up by the really bright moon and then could hear the buzzing of the electricity, although it still is pretty far away to hear the buzzing of the electricity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was probably a carryover. Mm -hmm. So as they are ducking out of sight from the patrolling guards in Bartertown, Max realizes something and he says, where's what's his name? He asked, trying to remember Screwloose's name. It's nice to see that we're not alone (laughs) in having a hard time remembering these kids' names. Max is having an equally hard time. So the kids looked around. Screwloose was nowhere to be seen. Max needed time to think. So he led the kids back to the salt lake and the poles in the ground, the place where Auntie Entity had banished Max to the desert after the fight with Blaster. Mm -hmm. So they did go back. They went somewhere else. Like the area where Max was released to go to Gulag is a place called the Castle out in the Cooperpedi area. And so he brought them there because he knew that that was a place that... The guards don't often patrol. I mean, that's their exiling point. That's where they have these sticks in the ground to mark how many people they've sent out into the gulag. So he brings them there as sort of a staging area. As they're gathered there, Screwloose comes back. He doesn't speak, but very excitedly pulls at Max's arm, wanting him to follow. All right, all right, said Max. He turned to the others. You stay here. Screwloose leads Max to the edge of Barter Town, and Max's monkey, co-pilot, is waiting by a drain pipe opening from which she had escaped so many days before. So Max sees this and says, ah, good. He knew he could get into Barter Town through that way. If Sally Ann can get out, they can get in. So Max tells Screwloose to wait and says, I'll get the others. And he turns around to find that more or less everybody except for Savannah, Anna, and Gecko have followed him. Like, they're already there right behind him. So Max more or less tells everybody, okay, you wait here. I'm going to go back for the others. And in a little comedic point, he hands a stick to Screwloose and says, use this. The first person who moves, belt him. Understand? And so Screwloose nods. And Max turns to leave, and Screwloose hits him with a stick. Perfect. (laughs) Because he moved. Of course. Back at the Salt Lake, Savannah and Anna, which... I gotta say, the two of them being in close proximity to each other, that's something that doesn't feel right about saying Savannah and Anna. <laughs> it sounds weird to me. Just gonna put that out there. Anyway. You could say Anna and Savannah. I was say you gotta yeah, that, that, that's around. not better. No, it's, it's rhyming. It has rhythm. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Back at the Salt Lake, those two are tending to Gecko, and he is lying there on the ground. His head is in Anna's lap, and he's muttering to himself. So Max walks up, and Anna looks up to him and says, he's talking to Mr. Dead. And Gecko says, that you, Captain? We's there. And Max gathers Gecko up and carries him to the cliff to show him Barter Town, and Savannah and Anna follow. And Max seats Gecko on the ground, and Gecko tries to focus his eyes, and he says, I sees it. I sees the river of light. We's there, ain't we? Tomorrow, Morrowland? And Max says, yes, son. He said, but where's the Sonic? Anna brings him his stick with the record on it, and she hands it to him. And 
puts his headphones on his ears and this whole time Anna's trying really hard not to cry and Gecko gasps saying it ain't here I ain't gonna hear it and then he looks at Anna and he says but you will and he gives her his headphones he says you'll hear it for me and then Gecko was still Aww. oh man yeah and they cut that from the movie <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we didn't really care that much when Finn died, so I guess we... <laughs> we'll just fade out. We'll just completely cut the next one out. Keep moving. Maybe one death is all that Warner Brothers would allow. Like, they saw an early cut of this movie, and they're like, well, George and George, because Miller and Ogilvy. You see, we got a scene with one kid dying, and then almost immediately you've got another kid dying. I don't know about that, George. This is a PG-13 movie. It's for children, because that's how Warner Brothers thinks. <laughs> so they made him cut one. If you had to choose between cutting one death or the other, would you have chosen the same keeping Finn McCoo's death and cutting Gecko's death? Or would you have switched it? Oh, I absolutely would have switched it. I agree. I think Gecko's death was more interesting which is a horrible thing to say about death but <laughs> it's a movie. and why did he die or why was he dying i guess before the story even started before we came to the waiting ones he had fallen and hurt his leg uh. and that's really the only thing that's said about it except that we know he had an infection so i'm guessing he had like a gash in his leg some sort of mm -hmm. open wound mm -hmm. they got infected which anna goanna has been tending the whole time and he had kind of a brace type thing around his leg okay. so he wasn't too quick with the walking so when he followed savannah out into the desert he was too slow and because the tribe has very distinct rules about keeping pace if you can't keep up you're left behind and so the reason that Max and Anna were dragging Gecko through the desert as they were looking for Savannah and the others is because they found him blinded by the sun, crawling through the sand. He'd lost his stick. He couldn't find anything and he was completely disoriented. And so they found him and took him along because they couldn't just leave him in the middle of the desert. Hmm. That's sad that everybody else just left him. Yeah. But tribe ways, I guess. <laughs> Tribal rules or not, that's still pretty sucky. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness he had Anna who actually cared whether he lived or died. And she's basically the only one. Yeah. She went out of her way to save his life. We're pretty sure that the only reason Anna went with Max was to find Gecko. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If he wasn't involved, she wouldn't have gone. So if those were the established tribal rules, why did he go in the first place? That's a really good question, and I do not know. I think he just really wanted to find Tomorrow Morrowland on his own. He wanted to see it. He wanted to find the Sonic in the video, and he was just going to go full steam ahead, disregarding the circumstances. So I have another question. Since Tomorrow Morrowland keeps getting brought up, are they calling Tomorrow Morrowland, like, is that the name of it? Or is Tomorrowland the name of it, and they just kind of put their affectation on it? I think that they actually think the name of the place is Tomorrow Morrowland. Because they don't seem to really have metaphors and idioms in their language anymore. They take everything very literally. So I don't think they see nicknames as nicknames. They see them as names. Sure. Hence, screw loose. Right. So <laughs> I think they think the physical place of Sydney is actually called Tomorrow Morrowland. So they know what screws are? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, there's something holding those bits of yeah, plane together, yeah. you know, and at one point there were adults teaching them what little English they know. <laughs> okay. If an adult was anywhere near when Screw Loose was dubbed Screw Loose, then that is a bad adult. <laughs> <laughs> to just allow that to happen. Yes. And Tubba? Who let that boy have that name? <laughs> I can't explain it. 
I don't have an excuse for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Dipping back into the storybook again real quick. Before they leave Gecko, Max offers to bury him, but Anna shakes her head. She doesn't want him to go through the effort of that. And so they just kind of leave Gecko on the cliff and make their way to Barter Town. Cutting back real quick to the idea of tribal rules, that's very much in line. They don't have the time or the energy or the resources to spend burying Gecko. So Anna knows that that's a sacrifice that can't be made. And she does it willingly. She walks away willingly. Well, there's also the question is, do they bury their dead as is? Or do they just not have a good grasp on death because all of their older tribe members take a leaving? And so they never actually see people die. Well, I do think they see people die. There's always illness and injury, which Gecko probably would have died anyways. You know, getting trapped out in the sun certainly did not help and certainly accelerated the infection. But let's be honest, he was going to die anyways. Yeah. And he can't be the first one to die of an infection or a disease. Up in Screwloose's grotto, there are bones. And human skulls, yeah. Yeah. So they've seen death before, and you're right. I don't think their tradition is to bury them. Not sure what their tradition is. Maybe to burn them? Maybe. But they have the bones around. So but just how Lord of the Flies is this group? <laughs> <laughs> We talked about Lord of the Flies on our weekend episode when we were talking about Hook. And one of the big differences between Lord of the Flies and the Lost Boys and also the Waiting Ones is the Waiting Ones actually kept a relatively humane society. Sure. Where there are no factions, there's no competition for power or resources. They've actually developed a society peacefully maybe it wasn't always that way maybe it wasn't always peaceful but they've evolved into something peaceful mm -hmm. everyone is so focused on their role within the tribe that there's no room for politics and these are kids raised in a wasteland these aren't a bunch of english school boys that have been taught history and civics in proper english boarding school so they haven't been tainted by this idea of backstabbing and politics and I'm in charge. No, I'm in charge. I'm the leader or whatnot. They just have their roles. Slake is a hunter. Gecko is the radio guy. Skyfish is obsessed with kites. There are fishers and gatherers and people that keep watch. Like everyone has a job and no one has time for petty politics. So no. in Lord of the Flies, their education was their downfall. Oh yeah. With the waiting ones, their ignorance is the reason for their success. Lord of the Flies is a textbook example of the danger of hypermasculinity. This idea that you have to be a tough guy hunter man and dominate other people around you in order to survive. And that sort of thinking leads only to destruction, as shown in the book. Mm. And we've definitely seen examples in the society of the waiting ones. There doesn't really seem to be misogyny in this society. The two leaders, Savannah and Slake, seem to be very equal. Yeah, the only time they really butt heads is when one of them wants to leave and one of them thinks that they should stay. Right. <laughs> that argument had absolutely nothing to do with gender. So that's interesting. I mean, it's interesting in the light of this entire movie because it does seem like there's two different tones, but I guess they could be on purpose because where Auntie is trying to reestablish a society, but she's kind of doing it the only way she knows how, you know, with the 
the Thunderdome and everything. But I guess in this movie, the answer isn't with the old generation that knows the old world. It's with the new generation that's just starting fresh, I guess. Like she's she's trying, but she can't actually do it. I like the idea that she's using the only pattern that she knows. She's seeing at least short-term success, but these kids have been at it longer than Auntie has been building up Barter Town, and they have no map. The kids are just winging it, and there's no fighting and killing in amongst the waiting ones. There's no power grabs and backstabbing, so I think they've kind of done the right thing, and I think their innocence helped with that. Mm-hmm. So getting back to the minute at hand, <laughs> this wipe that we have transitions to Max by this large pipe opening and Savannah and Anna are there and Anna is holding Gecko's stick. So this is very clearly a scene that is supposed to immediately follow the one that we just talked about with Gecko on the cliff. And it says in the storybook that when they reached the drain, the others were gone. So cursing, Max herded Anna and Savannah into the drain and then followed them through. (laughs) Wait, in the storybook, it says that he curses... Okay. Yeah. I like how the storybook is just like a simplified, almost a kid's version, Mm -hmm. where in the screenplay, he actually swears. In this shot, yeah, it's just the three of them, because he left Screwloose and the others outside the pipe, and they went in on their own. But the way they cover up this whole, why isn't anybody else around the pipe thing, is they add in 80-yard voices of the other children. For instance, you can hear Anna telling them, wait, stick together, and Kusha pipes up with, where are we? And we hear Skyfish saying, it's Barter Town. We hear Eddie pipe up saying, oh, it stinks. (laughs) And we don't actually see any of them, but we believe that they are just inside the pipe. And because of that wipe, we didn't get to see them enter it. Where in reality, this is a remnant of that other story. In fact, I think this shot here of Max and Savannah and Anna going into the pipe is the last remnant of the ditched gecko storyline, far as I can tell. Well, it definitely clears things up because, I mean, we're on our second minute of our guesting here and they've done a lot of stuff. They've traveled a long ways, or it seems like a long ways anyway, and they just keep wiping right through. So <laughs> I guess that that helps. Be interesting to watch this movie again after knowing all of this stuff and <laughs> actually knowing who characters yeah, are and what's going on. Yeah. I agree. (laughs) There's certainly a lot that's just brushed over that could have been included, but wasn't. Julia, as you've been poking through the book, is there anything that stands out to you that could help color the situation before we move on? No. Everything that the book adds, the storybook added as well. Just in a more simplified, kid-friendly way? Yes. Okay, sounds good. So here at the tail end of 74, we're going to put a pin in this situation so that way we can come back on Friday, we'll follow Max and Savannah as they navigate Underworld's pipe and vent system as they try to find their way into the city. They'll eventually reach a dead end, but Max has a plan that he's going to share with the others, which is a good thing to do when you have a plan. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link 
Thank you for joining us for Minute 74 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time. Everybody!